Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The chilling words of the Michigan mass shooter's mother tonight on Laura Coates Live. Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of the teenager who shot four classmates to death in 2021 in the worst school shooting in Michigan's history, took the stand today. She is charged with involuntary manslaughter in a case that testing the limits of who might be found responsible for a mass shooting. And let me tell you, her testimony today was shocking. I've asked myself if I would have done anything differently, and I wouldn't have. If you could change what happened, would you? Oh, absolutely. I wish he would have killed us instead. Imagine a mother saying that she wishes her own son would have killed her and his father and saying, if given the chance, she wouldn't have done anything differently. Meanwhile, her defense attorney indicating that she and her client don't necessarily meet eye to eye or see eye to eye about how to handle the rest of the case, specifically on who ought to testify in favor of the defense. She's going to go to the jail tonight. She told the judge to speak more with Crumbly. And tonight, we'll take an in-depth look at the arguments and the evidence so far. And the big question in all of this, should a parent be held responsible for the crimes of their child? Joining me now, CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson and Elliot Williams. I'm so glad that you're both here today. We have been waiting for the moment that she would take the stand. Um, and they announced the trial was happening and they could hold ready. They said, you're going to testify. And lo and behold, she did testify. And Elliot, she was asked about the weapon, a very important moment about who purchased it and what did she do? Well, she talked about her husband. Listen to this. Are guns your thing? Not really, no. Okay. But do you have awareness about guns within your home? I do. Okay. Who is responsible for storing the gun? My husband is. Okay, explain why you say he's responsible for that role. Um, I just didn't feel comfortable being in charge of that. It was more his thing, so I let him handle that. I didn't feel comfortable putting the lock thing on it. Um, I just, I just rather, just rather not let him do it. So she's explaining, of course, and talking about it wasn't her thing. That it was, it fell on her husband. What was the logic in that? Um, I wouldn't feel comfortable putting on the lock thing. The code was zero, zero, zero to the lock on the firearm. There was negligence all around in this house. And what she's trying to do is just sort of point the finger at her husband, who's also uh, charged with manslaughter here as well. He a different was, trial, a different though, that's trial, important. A different trial because there would have been a little bit of this and pointing mm-hmm. at each other as defendants, and they had different strategies and so on. But I think she's trying to minimize her own liability here by saying that this was on him. He was the one that messed up. But this moment goes back to the school. Remember, this was a school shooting as gut-wrenching as that is. And so the school officials are a part of this, even if they're the elephants in the room. Some have testified, Joey. And there's a conversation happening on the stand about whether she knew about troubles at school, but also what she didn't tell them when she was called in school that day about having bought a gun. Yeah, no question. But here's the reality. 
There's a picture that he draws that is Ethan Crumbly. It has the gun on it, it has blood on it, and it has other words on it. Your school officials, why would you, if you're not school officials from a defense perspective, why would you not make inquiries with respect to gun? You go, you grab the knapsack, you have every opportunity to evaluate the contents of that uh, knapsack, you don't do it. You instead give it back. And so there's blame to go all the way around. And then the narrative of the meeting itself, in terms of the meeting they were having, what meeting? When James, the husband, and, and of course the mother, Jennifer, come to the meeting, she described it as a very matter-of-fact meeting mm -hmm. where they said, hey, in, in sum and substance, we got you. It's all, you know, it's all good. Get it wasn't the urgency. Yet. Exactly. They're just, you know, it, what, it's not described as I'm not going to take my son out of school. That issue, right, seems to be misplaced in terms of what the school suggesting she refused to take the son out, out of school. That wasn't the case at all. So I think certainly the school had responsibility. Last point. And that is that apparently he was troubled also, Ethan Crumbly, and he was, of course, saying the school and the teachers were saying, hey, listen, he's having a rough time. He's sleeping in class. His assignments are not being done. Guess who they didn't convey that to? The parents. And so therefore, I think the school certainly has an obligation as well to be forthcoming with the parents to let them know what's happening with their children so that they could have taken preventative steps. Counterpoint! I would, I would say that the school has to be forthcoming, but that's sort of not the problem here. Now, the school's failures, and there were many of them, and, and I'm 100% with you on that. When the day comes that the school is sued, and they will be sued for a lot of money. Now, they may be able to get out of it for some immunity issues and so on. But um, all of that will come up, and there are various failings along the way. But I, there's a pattern and a chain of negligence from her and the family. So, number one, let's take that that um, drawing that the parents were aware of and shown that said, there will, what was it, there will be blood on the ground at the school. Um, all of the comments that he'd made to his mother about uh, violence and uh, diary entries and so on. Oh, well, well, uh, well, on that diary, let's talk about that yeah. for a second because I want to make sure everyone knows what you're talking about. There was a peek inside the diary and one of the entries in the diary said this, Elliot, I want help, but my parents don't listen to me, so I can't get any help. My parents haven't listened to me about help or a therapist. Another one says, I want help, but my parents don't listen to me, so I, don't, I can't get any help. I have zero help for my mental problems, and it's causing me to shoot up the effing school, he writes. I mean... Maybe right. they, don't, they haven't seen it. That's their case. That's right. their defense. Now, my brother Joey Jackson will probably say, uh, as any good defense attorney would, that, well, his parents weren't made aware of these diary entries. These were in his private diary. Well, there's at least one instance where he calls his mother and says, I'm scared of our barn. There are, there are voices and people talking to me uh, it, out in, in well, the barn. Well, he claims it's haunted. But, but put that in context, though, right? He claims it's haunted, yeah. and she says that's a whole shit. And she brushes it off and thinks it's a joke. But he Here's why. But okay. here's All why. Right. The reality of that is that, of course, the house that they had was was actually built in 1920. Right. And there were indications because the house was built in 1920, they, they had this thing where it could be haunted. Yeah. And he would constantly say things are flying off. He would be with the Ouija board. The mother would play tricks and turn off the circuit breaker. So when you look at something and you give it context, not in isolation, it presents a bigger picture. Yeah. As it relates to the journal itself, I mean, should parents just rummage through no, their no. children's <laughs> things? The reality is well, we actually, give children yes. Yes, in yes, some in respects. Some respects, yes, they in should. In some respects, ahead. they should. But we give 
give children privacy so they could yeah. develop, they could grow, and they could do what they have to do. You showed the journal entries. The reality is, is that that's only relevant to the extent that the parents would have knowledge as to that. And if the parents don't have knowledge as to that, then that's a problem. We are not here for a referendum of mother of right. the year. We're here to determine whether she has criminal culpability that would rise to the issue of whether she's responsible for his death. Furthermore, you don't charge Ethan Crumbly, right, as an adult, which they did, but then you say he's a child and the parents should have responsibility over him. There's a disconnect. We want to deter gun violence, but we don't want to misplace blame. Yeah. The school has a responsibility here big time. The father has a responsibility here big time. Don't put people in jail yeah. because you want to eliminate Second Amendment issues. Put people in jail because they're criminally responsible. Okay, let's get back to that barn and let's get back to the voices yes. he said he was hearing. And it's sort of like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me eight or nine times you are liable for manslaughter because there was a pattern of conduct along the way where they kept missing the signals from the note to the teacher, from the uh, his uh, from the diary entries, from the his saying that he was hearing voices. It happened again and again and again, and they brushed off all of these concerns. Now, but shouldn't it though at yeah. that point be? could the proximate cause are linked in some way. The idea of hearing the voices or the haunted house and having that direct causal link that can say it was close in time and here's what resulted. That's that's what they're saying as the defense of this is something that happened all the time. It wasn't connected to here. What's your response? Oh, I will say 100%. We were talking about this before this. This is a challenging case to prosecute for all the reasons we're talking about here. Now, you can get there and I think what you are doing is you would identify a pattern of behavior by the parents in being negligent with number one, how they stored and safeguarded the, the firearm. Number two, ignored statements from him about his desire to carry out acts of violence. And number three, brushing off statements made directly to them about his desire to, to carry out acts of violence. It, it, it's a pattern. It's not great. It's certainly not, not great. It's an amazing civil suit. <laughs> when they get sued right. for a lot of money, they're going to lose. Well, I, I think it, it's tricky as a, as a prosecution. Quick I, thing. I had, well, one, before you yes. get into that, though, sure. I want to... Part of the idea of who would be able to corroborate some of these statements yeah. might, in fact, be the shooter himself, who's serving life in prison, who is on the witness list to testify on behalf or in, in the defense's case. It's going to come up, Joey, whether or not he did, in fact, ask his parents for help, whether they, in fact, were on notice. It's quite a gamble if they're completely sure that his response will be, I didn't actually ask them. It was in my diary. They never really knew. But that's a hell of a chance to take. It is. Well, apparently there are, from his uh, discussions with the psychiatrist or, or what have you, this information which would suggest that the parents were not aware, right, of him actually looking and seeking help. Well, listen, listen to, there's a saw on that. I mean, listen to the sound bite in, in court today. Listen to this. Were you even aware of this? No. Do you remember any time where he came and talked to you and said anything about hearing voices? No. Do you recall there ever being a time where he asked you for go to go to a doctor or to get help and you said no? No. And therein lies the issue. An important part of this case is notice. To yeah. what extent were the parents on notice as to any tendencies that he might have, right? Not only his mental proclivities, but any violence. Here's a, here's a student. He had no disciplinary record in school. This, apparently, school described him as potentially sad. Remember the context also, the time of COVID, right? COVID 2020 March. This happened November 2021. There was a lot of carryover and depression. When the mother indicated that she was concerned about him, she was concerned about him, that he 
he may exact violence upon himself. He doesn't have any violent history as it relates to other yeah. students, killing birds maybe. But the reality is, is that if the parents were not aware, what would they be anticipated to do? On the day the, the, the shooting happens, she texts him, says, I love you, looking for you. He doesn't respond. She writes back, Ethan, don't do it. Now, what she says is that don't do it was I don't want you to kill yourself. Right. But what she do to, to stop him from killing himself? Either she was negligent in preventing her son's suicide or negligent in preventing her son's uh, school shooting. But needless to say, she was she was aware because the don't do it. She knew that she he, that he had a firearm and she knew that he was going to use it to do something and still did nothing about it. So this whole idea that she was blissfully ignorant about what was going on. There was on. no history of violence with respect to him and exacting right. any violence upon anyone else at any time. OK, there's there another. No indication in school that he bullied anybody, that he got involved in any violence with anybody at all. The only issues were internal as to him. Yeah. We're talking about their ability, foreseeability as it relates to murder. And that is a tough climb. a bucket of stuff. He's Googling at school how to procure ammunition. He gets in trouble for it. And what does his mom text him? She says... Ha ha, LOL, just don't get caught she next time. She also addressed that too. And unless the mother's there looking at what he's Googling, how would the mother know what just he's doing? Just don't get caught parents, next time. Look, Come parents on, have a tremendous responsibility, as we know. But the realities are, is the responsibility has to stop somewhere. Yeah. And if a parent is not fully aware as to what their children's activities are, they should not be held accountable for the murder that their children engages in. And I just think that that's what's and happening. I Let me tell you something. Let me tell you. The jury deliberating these points, thinking about this in a community where many of the students go hunting before school, many are gun owners in terms of the people who would be in the community. You got parents who are being questioned. This is why this trial is so historic and we're going to continue to cover it. Joey Elliott, thank you both so much. Oh, they're shaking hands. No, okay. Prosecuted defense. Right. Oh, I love it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry, there's a bromance happening in the studio right now. Here's some more of Jennifer Crumbly defending herself today in court. Listen. Are you a failure as a parent? I don't think I'm a failure as a parent, but at that time, um, I guess I didn't see, I felt bad that Ethan was sad at those things, and I guess I just, I don't know, I just felt like I failed somewhere. You knew or had reason to know your son was a danger to anyone else. No, um, as a parent, you spend your whole your whole life trying to protect your your child from other dangers. Um, you never you never would think you have to protect your child from harming somebody else. My next guest, New York Times opinion writer Megan Stack, thinks that Jennifer Crumbly, well, is being villainized. You got to read her piece. It was so thought provoking. It's called "What Is This Mother Really Guilty Of." Megan Stack joins me now. Megan, we were talking with, of course, the lawyers about the legal implications of it. But societally, this is a big question many people are asking. It is historic. It's the first time that a parent has been charged for this sort of crime on behalf of a school shooter's um, conduct. And, and you say there's a lot of questions that you have about why she's being charged. Why? Because I really studied the legal case against her and I looked at the evidence very carefully over a period of a long time. I've just been very interested in this case since I first, I still remember when we first saw like the mug shots and they had sort of mm -hmm. gone on the lamb and there was this sense of fugitive parents. Um, 
but when I looked at what the case needed to be proven, as you guys were just speaking about in the last segment, and I looked at the actual evidence, I don't, I just don't really see, if I were on the jury, I don't see the moment when I'm supposed to be convinced that they knew that there was a possibility or a, or a real like imminent possibility that he would start attacking his schoolmates. And so what I did notice from the very beginning was that there was a huge amount of innuendo in the case. Mm. We heard about her affairs. We heard that she loves horses. She maybe likes the horses more than her son. She was sneaking away to meet her boyfriend at Costco in the parking lot. Like everything that seemed to be suggestive of somebody that we shouldn't like, that we shouldn't approve of. Um, and I, you know, I think all of those details are, are true. And I, I don't think that we have to like her. But I think we have to ask, can we prove this case? Because this is a very serious case. This is a, you know, we're talking about 15 years in prison. We're talking about an unprecedented attempt to charge parents. And by the way, the parents of somebody who was charged himself as an adult. Yeah. So I, I still feel, watching the trial even today, that the general effort is to make us not like her, make us think that she is guilty and she was a bad mom and she was neglectful, which in fact, all of that may be true. I'm not here to defend Jennifer Crumbly as a, as a person, as a mother. I don't feel like we know that much about their family life. I think we have little pieces. And I think that we're being encouraged to imagine this whole narrative around those pieces, which may well, or may not be true. Well, let me ask you on this point. Yeah. You, you question your piece, sort of the motivation as yeah. the culmination of you know, it's historic, it's the first time, but it follows a long line of mass shootings. And you have um, opined whether this was in reaction to that frustration and that there is somebody who is a shooter, who is alive to be held accountable, which oftentimes has not happened to hold them to account in some circumstances. And now you have a parent who also can be held to account. Is this reactive in that way? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at these shootings, if you look at shootings across the country, there's so much fatigue and there's so much fear among parents and families and communities. And I think when these shootings happen, it's just so devastating to the fabric of the community and there's so much anger and people want to find somebody to blame. And I think it's not just somebody to blame, it's as many people to blame as possible. Civil lawsuits, whoever you can prosecute, you want to prosecute. Once you prosecute somebody, you want to put them for the longest sentence possible. And I think that is a very natural human impulse. I think when you have been wronged as a community, of course you want some kind of like justice and reparation and whatever else you can get. And I think nationally the same thing is happening. I think we're all exhausted by these shootings. I think there's not a single American, whatever they think about guns, who isn't just beside themselves on some level with dread and kind of disgust over this sort of ceaseless gun violence that we're all living with, but nobody really seems able to stop it. And so you want to do something, you want to grab onto something. And I, I think that this case is under that umbrella of just looking for something that we can do. It's fascinating to think, if, and I wonder what the jury is thinking today in that community. Of course, they like the nation reeling still from what has happened, but yeah. they, ha they acutely feel it as being a member of the community as well. I wonder if they think of it the way you do. The article is really just so well-written and thoughtful. I encourage everyone to read it. Megan Sack, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Next, what the campaigns are doing behind the scenes. The unusual thing about Nevada, and I pronounced it correctly, not Nevada, Nevada. I memorized it. And why Joe Biden is not following the Obama playbook.
This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. I have told this to the press... I've told this to anybody who will hear it. I am not going anywhere. Nikki Haley vowing to stay in the race, but her path to the White House is, well, difficult, to say the least. We've got CNN political commentator and senior spokesperson for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. Karen Finney, you're here at the Magic Wall to peel back the curtain and take us behind the scenes on the campaign trail, this playbook of yes, sorts. Yes, let's take a look at what's coming up. Now, remember, I want you to remember something. We've got some contests coming up. Yep. Nevada, South Carolina, Super Tuesday. I want you to remember one thing. Delegates. It's not about the Benjamins, it's about the mm. delegates. As you can see, going into these next contests, Trump has a pretty, pretty big lead. DeSantis and Ramaswamy, because they've dropped out, those delegates can basically, DeSantis could say, I want my delegates to go to Trump. They can, they can choose another path. The point is, Trump has the majority of the delegates. 32 already going in. All he needs is, well, 12, 15, essentially, at the correct, end of the day. All right? Correct. So let's take a look at Nevada. Mm. In Nevada, we got two contests next week. But why? Why are there two different ones? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> With 26 delegates at stake, what happened in 20, after 2020, the Democratic governor of Nevada said, let's just do a primary for our presidential contest. Let's make it vote by mail. But the Republican Party said, no, we want to do a caucus. And each party gets to determine their own rules around how they're going to select their candidates. So even though the state is going to run a primary and Nikki Haley appears on that primary, there are no delegates at stake. So voters could actually vote on February 6th for Nikki Haley, but it would mean nothing to her in the overall count. Correct. It would be a pretty hollow victory. She might, if she wanted to, tout how many people voted for her, but it doesn't get her in that magic delegate count. Donald Trump, who is participating in the caucus, goes, leaves it with all 26 delegates. Wow. And here's why that matters. Then we go to South Carolina, 50 delegates at stake. South Carolina is proportional. So that means the proportion of the vote you get is about the proportion of the delegate, about 50 delegates you get. But take a look at our recent poll. You heard Nikki Haley on that uh, clip right there talking about how she wants to close that gap. Mm -hmm. 
That's a big gap. It's a big if gap. She, if she can't close it, that means the gap between she and Donald Trump for the delegates starts to get even wider. So if this were to stay as it is, he would get 58% of those delegates, he'd get 32%, but she wouldn't be able to get much closer than he is to that ultimate goal. Right, I mean, he's already starting ahead and he'll continue to just widen that gap. And the big kahuna, Super Tuesday, March 8th. Wow. The biggest of the big of all these contests is California. Another change that the state Republican Party made just last summer, instead of doing proportional allocation, it's a winner-take-all. Trump wanted that, though. Yes, he did. His, his folks wanted that. They kept an eye on what was moving through the Rules Committee at the state party. So who does that favor? Donald Trump. It's a big, expensive state. Donald Trump's favored to win it. And again, 169 delegates. So it makes it much harder for Nikki Haley to catch up. And that could be the case for all these different states identified, even if it's proportional or otherwise. If he takes California, if he gets the other states as well, okay. he is well, well ahead. But how does this play for Biden? How are they looking at this entirety of the scheme? Yeah. So Biden announced today something. He's going back to a more traditional model. These are some of the key states that President Biden won in 2020. And what they announced today is that they're actually, instead of creating a separate infrastructure in states like President Obama did in his reelection in 2012, President Biden's going to rely on the state parties. And they've been building up those state parties through the DNC over the last several years. Now, if we look at this map, think about what's going on in 2022. These are states that know how to win. Mm. These are state parties that have been working with the, the communities, the progressive groups in their state. They know how to win. That should be an advantage for President Biden because it means he's not actually starting from scratch as he's staffing up in these states. This is so important to go behind the scenes and think about what's at stake in the entire playbook. So helpful, Karen Finney, so helpful. Thank you, stay with us, please. We've got a lot more to talk about because Joe Biden was in one of those battleground states that Karen pointed out today, the state of Michigan. Now he won it narrowly back in 2020, but is he at risk of losing it now? Donald Trump possibly in 2024. We'll talk about it next. President Biden basking in the glow of the high profile endorsement he received from the United Auto Workers Union. We now have, in large part because of you and organized labor, the strongest economy in the whole damn world. We do. We do. In the whole world. Inflation's coming down. R jobs are growing. We created 800,000 manufacturing jobs. Remember they told us we were dead. Manufacturing is dead in America. China was going to eat our lunch. Well, guess what, man? We don't taste that good. Well, the president's putting the economy front and center during his first campaign stop in the critical, and I do mean critical, battleground state of Michigan. The question is, is his message being received? And are there other factors that might make Michigan problematic for President Biden's reelection? Karen Finney is back from the magic wall, along with former Congressman Joe Walsh, also here. Let's get right to the point here as to why Michigan is so important to him. It's not just the fact that it was, you know, reclaimed by Biden after Hillary, I think, lost it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also a place that has a lot of pushback now because of the foreign policy decisions and alliances since October 7th. Why do you think he's making the stop here? Is it really the economy? I think he's got to stress the economy. 
Uh, there's Muslim vote in Michigan that is not happy with him. There's young vote in Michigan that's not happy with his uh, foreign policy. But I, I love him getting out there and aggressively talking about the economy. I love the way he talks. Laura, I just, I, I want to see him out there. Yeah. And the Midwest is so crucial, and he's still lunch pail Joe. I think the more he can get out, the better. And I think that's part of the strategy, as Joe's pointing out, right? It's reminding people he's got that, you know, blue-collar yeah. background. And he is so good when he is just walking around talking to folks, right, regular folks. He actually does quite well. The other reason that Michigan is important is, you know, we were talking about delegates. Well, now it's all about that magic number of 270, right? So when you t start to think about the path to the presidency, Michigan is critical. We have a strong Democratic governor there. We have a strong economic argument to make there to voters, aside from some of the other issues. So, again, got to go out there and push the positives to try to reclaim this state. And, frankly, they're going to need to, though, I have to say— mm. Rebuild some bridges because right. we are in a situation where yeah. some in the Muslim American community have said, you know what? We survived four years of Bush. I mean, of Trump. We can survive four more. If we you know what? To. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, to that point, by the way, um, said that she had, who knows Michigan better than anyone, and she's obviously a congressman from Michigan, says she had a very candid conversation with President Biden about that rebuilding of the bridges and that um, he's got a eroding support among some Muslim voters. And I'm just wondering if you think that message has been received by him or do you think he believes, oh, time will just heal all wounds? I'm afraid it's the latter. I hope it's the former. And again, to Karen's point, he ought to just address it. I'd love... But what's the most effective way of doing it? How do you do that? I'd love to see Joe Biden, President Biden, in front of an intimate audience of Muslim American voters in Michigan talking about this. I think Biden is so much stronger off the cuff and with people directly. Get him in front of this. Address this issue directly. The problems that Muslim Americans have with his policy on Israel, because overall, his standing strong with Israel is a good position for him with the general electorate. But what's the, what is the statement that he could make that would um, be effective, what would resonate? You know, I think there's probably not one thing that mm -hmm. he could say that would change the dynamic. It's more about going to have the conversation, as Joe yeah. was talking about. It is more about, I think, being in the room and making sure people felt heard in terms of what their concerns have been. Because remember, I mean, I did see Debbie Dingell on the air earlier, and she was talking about her own constituents, mm -hmm. the calls that they are getting from family members who live in the Gaza Strip. And being able to hear those stories firsthand from people and perhaps to explain to them kind of the, the, the nuances of the sort of binds that he's in. Because we know he can only do so much with Israel. Um, and he has started to press the case more. And I hope he continues to do that and have those conversations. Laura, this, I is, wonder. this is a tough issue for him it because is. this issue divides the Democratic coalition. And I don't think he should run from it. I think he's got to go right at it. I mean, if if he thinks it's tough, imagine the people in Gaza, right, um, who are dealing with the issue every day. And, of course, those in Israel as well, hoping to have more than lip service from other nations, from within, from negotiations and beyond. But this is a crucial issue politically as well. The polls tell us that it really is crunch time. We are 200, what, 70-something days away from the election. And look at this new CNN national poll that's out right now. It shows that Trump is narrowly ahead of President Biden in a matchup. 
But the numbers actually have not changed, Joe, since November. And I wonder if that spells trouble since it's pretty constant. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that, Laura. What's interesting there is most Republican voters believe Trump can beat Biden. Most Americans don't, but most Republican voters do. And that kind of takes away Nikki Haley's strongest argument. And even though he's only up three or four points on Biden, he's up on Biden so he can make the claim that he can still beat him. Meanwhile, you have another poll where you have um, Haley saying that she's, of course, sticking it out. But there's also a poll that also shows that Haley holds a very clear lead over Joe Biden. Um, If she were the candidate of choice in that respect, does she have a shot based on that? Well, this is the argument she's trying to make to the GOP primary electorate. So far, they're not buying it. Look, I think in the abstract, of course, that looks like an interesting matchup. But I think in the actual head-to-head, particularly based on how we've seen her trying to make some pivots in the last couple of days, I don't think she's ready for the bright lights of the general election. Well, don't tell her that. I won't. I won't. I won't. But if she calls you and asks for advice, tell her I mean, I can, I can tell. I will. I'll Actually, say. maybe not. I, well, conference me in. Thank yeah. you. I want, to, yeah. I want to record that conversation. Karen, Joe, thank you both so much. Up next, from the Great Recession to the COVID pandemic, they're called Black Swan events, and they can completely alter the course of our lives. The theory behind the chaos in just a moment. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. It's a wild world we live in these days. A former president facing multiple trials, major, and I do mean major, global conflicts around the entire world. AI chatbot telling people they want to be alive and that they're in love with the users they're talking to. Sounds like chaos, right? If you put it all into perspective, it may seem like it's been a chaotic, well, several decades. An idea captured in memes like how millennials have lived through 9-11, multiple recessions, and the global pandemic, all before turning 40. It really does beg the question, just how big an impact are all of these events having on, well, our lives? How can something that seems maybe so small and so random, like maybe a single virus affecting a single person in a single city in China, how could that totally reshape everyday life for billions of people? And maybe it doesn't even have to impact billions. Maybe these chance events can just impact you. Have you ever laid in bed at night wondering what your life could have been like if even a small thing that happened to you went a different way? Well, Brian Kloss is a contributing writer at The Atlantic who talks about all of this in his brand new book. It's called Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. Thank you for joining me here tonight and a fellow Minnesotan, so I'm glad to see you, another hometown kid. Look, when you think about all of this together, I mean, you talk about what they are known as black swan events. What exactly is that? A black swan event is usually something that's highly unpredictable and extremely consequential. So it's a rare event that really changes our world. 
And I think we have engineered a world today that is more prone to them than ever before. And that's because the world's extremely interconnected. So in the past, you might have had a pandemic, but it wouldn't have upended the entire world for 8 billion people in the span of a few weeks, right? Or you have the Suez Canal boat, where a single gust of wind can twist a boat sideways, and it can cause $54 billion in damage because it just disrupts trade supply routes for weeks. And that's the world we've built without enough resilience. So black swans are becoming more common, and the random accidents of life are becoming more consequential. And it seems that the acts of life are felt for longer. It's not a blip on the radar. It is a sort of maybe a butterfly effect or a domino effect. Yeah, so the butterfly effect is part of chaos theory, and it's something that I talk about in the book, which is that basically these small changes can have huge ripple effects over time. And so one of the best examples of this is you remember the Arab Spring, Arab Spring 10, or, mm-hmm. 10 or 12 years ago. A single guy lit himself on fire in central Tunisia. It caused multiple governments to collapse, and also there was multiple wars that started as a result of this. And the Syrian civil war, hundreds of thousands of people dying as a ripple effect of this one person in central Tunisia lighting himself on fire, triggering the event. So I think we've engineered a society that's much more prone to this, and that's why these black swans are walloping us more than ever before. You know, I think if there's, I think there was a, was it Gwyneth Paltrow had that Sliding Doors movie at one point, right? You think about if one little thing had changed, if somebody was different in the scenario, if somebody had not been the resistance or somebody had not been there to perpetuate it, so many things could be different. Yeah, so I have this idea in the book I call the snooze button effect, and this brings it to our own lives, right? So you imagine you wake up on a Tuesday morning, you're a little tired, you hit the snooze button. That was yesterday. Thank you now, for bringing it up. <laughs> now you imagine you rewind 30 seconds and you don't hit the snooze button. And the question is, how much does your life change? And some of it might change quite a lot. You might meet totally different people. You might get into a car accident. Some of it might not change that much on a sort of small scale, but the ripple effects can aggregate over our lives. And so one of the things that's really difficult to imagine is that we can't understand the alternative pathways, but both in society and in our own lives, chaos theory says that these things are diverting our trajectories all the time. We're just completely oblivious to it. I think about this sort of thing all the time. I really do. I think about if one small thing had changed, you think about it in terms of romance, if you Mm -hmm. hadn't done this, maybe you wouldn't have met the love of your life or this hadn't happened. But it also can fuel conspiracy theories, can it not? It makes people go, wait a second, it's such a hyper-connected world we live in that this can't be coincidental. It's all part of something different. Yeah, so this is something I talk about. It's called narrative bias. And the, the human brain is prone to detecting patterns, even when there's just random explanations that are the real reason why something has happened. So whenever there's no story, we invent one. And we're really seduced by them. And this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to debunk conspiracy theories. Because people like you who will say, no, no, hold on, let's look at the facts. The problem is you're competing against someone who's telling a really good story. So QAnon, for example, is totally bogus. But it is a, it's a good story. I mean, it's a story that sounds compelling to people. And so they latch onto it. And when someone says, no, 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 there's nothing to see here, a lot of people who are, as all of us are, prone to storytelling... It's, a, it's an uphill battle. It's an un, unfair fight. And debunking conspiracy theories is partly because when there are things that just happen, we want to invent reasons for them. This idea everything happens for a reason is mm-hmm. also part of conspiratorial thinking. I'm fascinated by this. This is a really compelling read. I think so. You were leaning in going, wait, I, I put these things together. I thought of this. Then, of course, your book also goes into AI. I'm not going to spoil that for people as well. The book, again, is called Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. Brian Kloss, thank you so much for being with us today. We'll be right back. I want to remember civil rights activist, radio icon, friend, and mentor, Joe 
the Black Eagle, Madison. His family announcing on social media today that Joe lost his hard-fought battle with cancer. Writing, quote, Joe dedicated his life to fighting for all those who are undervalued, underestimated, and marginalized. Although he is no longer with us, we hope you will join us in answering that call by continuing to be proactive in the fight against injustice. You may very well remember Joe's appearances over the years right here on CNN, speaking about civil rights and America's politics. But he was not just talk. Joe went on a hunger strike for 73 days in 2021 over what he called a politically and morally wrong attack on voting rights, saying, quote, just as food is essential for the existence of life, voting is essential for the existence of democracy. He was known as the Black Eagle. Tonight, my friend, the Eagle is soaring higher than ever. And before we leave you tonight, a seat at the table. It's a phrase that we use to describe having your voice heard, knowing you are represented in the halls of power. But for Black Americans, 64 years ago today, the phrase took on a very literal meaning being able to sit at the same lunch counters and the same tables as white customers. You know, on this day in 1960, four young black men politely sat down at the whites only lunch counter at Woolworths in Greensboro, North Carolina. When they were asked to leave, they refused. And that helped to spark a protest that would last six months and frankly helped change America. One of those men, Joseph McNeil, wrote to sixth graders attending a school that was named in his honor back in 2020, and his wife was kind enough to share with us part of it. In it, he said, take courage. I was six years older than you are now when I began the sit-ins at Woolworths lunch counter in North Carolina to protest the unequal treatment of African-Americans in this country. So here we go again. It is character building time, and I know you are up to the challenge of incorporating your beliefs, wisdom, and strength of understanding to what is happening in the world today. I want to thank you all for watching. And now to my seat at the table while our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.